0: Digital Drift, Episode 70, recorded Monday, 20th of April, 2015. The Terminator. In the 21st century, a weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful, versatile, and indestructible.
1: It can't be reasoned with, it can't be bargained with. It will feel no pity, no remorse
0: no pain no fear it will have only one purpose to return to the present and prevent the future this weapon will be called the terminator
1: you're dead honey what day is it the date 12th may thursday what year i'm here to help you I'm Reese. DN three eight four one six assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. Why does it want me? Why
0: me? Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Your future is in its hands.
2: Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture.
0: Welcome to the Digital Drift. One of the most influential science fiction movies ever made gets the digital drift treatment. Sharon Shaw, my wife and co-host, has joined me to talk about a movie that has shaped her outlook on life. Hello. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince and the Animation Archives joins us. Hello there. I always forget just how tight The Terminator is as a film. There is not an ounce of fat on it everything serves the plot and at the same time informs on character or bears up to some examination as a statement on the world of 1984 and the eventual future war that would be our downfall. It races by like a juggernaut. Scenes I know frame by frame are still somehow able to cause tension. It has a circular structure. We start... In 2029, with a ravaged world, the mournful credits roll by with that wonderful thread of hope struggling through the centre of the melody. Now, This sums up the Terminator series at its best. Whether or not fate can be changed, the heroes are always aware of the terrible possible future, which for many of them is their past. And instead of crumbling, going into hiding, or committing suicide from the madness this near certainty of extinction brings, they fight The events of the film play themselves out with the literal seeds for hope in the future being delivered. The price is unbearably high, yet so small-scale that only Sarah is left to mourn. She then drives off into the future, grimly determined to do her best. There is so much of value here, it's smart and heartfelt and pulls no punches. Even the bad special effects are good, and the good ones are fantastic. The score roots it in its day and occasionally goes overboard, leaving you feeling like you're being serenaded by electronic synth whales inside the Tron arcade cabinet. It's by no means as cinematic, as epic in scale, as accessible, as wonderfully acted, or as exciting as its sequel, a film that pretty much lands on perfection for me. But for something we must remember that came out of nowhere and cost nothing, it is maybe more significant. Cameron, having seen Star Wars and decided he was going to work in movies at any cost, found himself in Roger Corman's stable of gruey, zero-budget exploitation schlockers. He directed Piranha to The Spawning, and was, in the early 1980s, sleeping on other people's floors and eating fast food every other day to stay alive. Thanks to the support of Gail Ann Hurd, his script, penned after a particularly intense dream, got picked up by Orion Pictures. Though the executives had little faith in him or understanding of what they had on their hands. Cameron was shooting scenes from the Terminator, guerrilla style, on locations without permits in order to get the thing made, and had a cast or crew member died due to an accident, the world would never have heard of this man. Or the Terminator, which would mean 80s and 90s comics would have had a lot fewer cyborgs and soldiers from dark futures. Alien would have had a very different sequel, which would have had a knock-on effect on video games history, the Titanic would have had a different recreation, and someone else would have had to bring 3D kicking and screaming back to cinema. In other words, his influence, Webb, cannot be unpicked. This man, difficult as he is to work with, or indeed conduct a relationship with, is a touchstone of popular culture extending far beyond his chosen medium. In the Terminator, Kyle Reese is played with damaged intensity by Michael Bean. Like Luke Skywalker selling us Yoda in Empire, he is the one to convince first us and then Sarah that this machine is unstoppable and terrifyingly dangerous. Schwarzenegger obliges by being incredibly steady and threatening, achieving a hell of a lot with simply a dead-eyed stare and brushing off attacks from regular humans. It doesn't hurt that he has a body that, and this is my favourite Clive James description, I think I used it when we reviewed Predator, resembles a condom full of walnuts. He is a perfect physical specimen. Too perfect. Too hard-looking. His emotions played so slight that they are indicative more of computation and readjustment. And then there's Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. A girl who goes from a bushy-haired, hapless waitress to a sombre and determined soldier a tenacious survivor, and an incredibly powerful icon for assertive women everywhere. Like Ellen Ripley, a character who Cameron loved so much in Alien, he integrated aspects of her into Sarah, only then to take up and redefine two years later. Sarah is a woman as iconic as her own name. It is a name that paints a picture in the minds of the viewers every time it is spoken. Resilient. Determined. These are not qualities she shows in her everyday life. They have to be brought out of her, tortured even. This is her trial by fire. She is reliant at first upon a support network of friends, family and police, civilization. All of them are stripped away one by one. In fact, her very reliance on them puts her at a disadvantage, giving herself away and putting herself on the Terminator's map. At the close, she has left all of this behind. Everyone is dead. Even her lifeline, the soldier that embodies a living paradox, all of it is gone, leaving her a Cassandra in a world about to end. Not only that, but knowing how important her unborn child is, she literally cannot give up, condemned to a life without rest or true safety, without ever being able to carve out her own path in the public eye and knowing that her son will suffer the same fate. She has to sacrifice everything, a true hero, not one of us would trade places with but all of us respect a ghost in the machine
2: Terminator 2 Judgment Day was one of the first films I owned on VHS and became fascinated enough with to watch over and over again. Then I saw the original Terminator late night on TV, taped it and watched that over and over again too. The story became ingrained enough for me that Sarah Connor was one of the most key fictional role models I had as a teenager. The tone of both films, especially the first one, perfectly fit the emotional detachment that seemed to be the only way I could safely interact with the world, yet left me longing to indulge the intensity of feeling that my brain was screaming for. There are numerous levels and angles that can be approached when interpreting the world of The Terminators. Part, I have no doubt, of why this $6.4 million picture, which the studio initially tried to sell purely as an action exploitation flick, went on to cement James Cameron as one of the most bankable directors in Hollywood. Personally, I like the idea that although it is ostensibly a cautionary tale about over-reliance on technology... In actual fact, it can be read as cautioning against the fear of over-reliance on technology, since the nature of fear is such that the more you resist it, the more likely it is to bite you in the arse. Skynet doesn't come from nowhere. Humans create it, and its seed is the future resistance's determination to crush it utterly. The most power this pair of films has for me, though, is as a psychological parable on protecting the self, Carl Jung's term for a reconciled whole person whose emotions and perceptions are able to interact healthily with each other, from the shadow, a complex of coping and defense mechanisms that have become distorted, negatively affecting the integrity of the self and damaging its ability to respond appropriately to threats. The idea came to Cameron while he was battling with a severe bout of food poisoning in Paris and dreamed that a robotic assassin was pursuing him. I'm reluctant to speculate what this might imply about Cameron's response to feeling isolated and out of control in his own body, which food poisoning has a tendency to evoke, in my experience. But the story that ensued has a lot to say about being attacked by your own defences and how this can be faced without succumbing to utter collapse. Beginning in the wasteland of human consciousness that is Los Angeles 2029, the film presents a world which is dying. The landscape is littered with skulls and human bones, showing that Skynet has reduced humanity, representing the psyche. ...to a skeletal framework and is even trying to return that unto dust. We are under threat of extinction from the very thing we created for our own protection. The subtitle of the third film, Rise of the Machines, is something of a misnomer... ...because machines do only what they are programmed to do by their creators. They don't act out of hate because they don't fear. They don't fear because they aren't driven by a desperation to survive. But the shadow is because it is a product of the human mind. And so is Skynet. Once the power to protect the ego, the raw vulnerable part of the psyche is entirely handed over to the shadow, we are no longer dealing with flexible, useful, controlled defense mechanisms, but with life that has taken a form unrecognizable to the developing self, perceives it as a threat and is antagonistic to its continuation." But Skynet's attempt has failed. The resistance led by their saviour, John Connor, and I don't think anyone's ever queried the blatant symbolism of his initials, has smashed the defense grid and soon they will swarm over the shadow and end its self-awareness. We can hope they will use the component parts to rebuild humanity, rather than simply crushing it and rejecting all technology, which would inevitably result in the creation of another shadow at the opposite end of the spectrum. But that's a story for another time. The only hope Skynet has to save itself now is to reach back into the dim and distant past and attack Connor's parents, and, since we know a time loop is created, meaning that these actions have always been going to have happened, this can be viewed as a psychological attempt to pick apart the events that have led to the development of the Shadow, and cause threat to the self's progression in the first place. A simple psychological premise is thus constructed. Sarah Connor can be perceived as the anima of this self, the life-giving principle who will ultimately give birth to, raise and train its mean to defeat the shadow complex. The soldier sent back in time to protect her, Kyle Reese, is the animus, the warrior who connects the self to the outside world, loves it and defends it when it is threatened. Traditionally, the anima is considered to appear only in the psyches of men, resulting from the obligatory repression of qualities considered feminine, within a societal culture which requires its boys to curb their instinctive empathy so they can be sent to war. The reverse is thought true for the animus, the impact of shaming women into leaving themselves defenceless and unprotected so that their vulnerability can be used as a tool to leverage the boys' repression. My view, however, is that this is a perception made through the distorted glass of the very society that imposes these repressions and uses gender binaries to reinforce them. I believe that all psyches contain both anima and animus, and that the individual should be free to respond to the innate impulses that balance these in their own unique way. So I am always delighted when a piece of fiction has a protagonist team incorporating male and female characters, and shows them as equally vital to a thriving existence. And so the scene is set. The anima-animus couple are to be pursued by the shadow as it attempts to preserve its relevance and prevent the birth of the child self that will reconcile humanity. Their battle will not be easy. They will be subject to isolation and fear, and the outcome, it seems, is both uncertain and set in stone. But with the belief that there is no fate but what we make for ourselves, they may just be able to ensure that they will one day be whole.
0: Um, Actually, I was going to start by uh, saying, how the hell does the time travel work in this film series? But uh, I realized as I was thinking about it that it's not a film series. It's a film, and then it's a sequel, which incorporates a slightly different form of time travel into the existing time travel lore. And then it's a bunch of follow-ups, which try their absolute best to suggest what is increasingly different rules. Yeah. So uh we can we can at least we can lay down at the beginning of each one what the time travel rules are for, for this one. Uh so as you said Sharon, um in in this first the Terminator, every single time travel event that's ever happened happens. Uh in so far as within this time frame, Reese and the T eight hundred get sent back in one go, and it always happened. Yes, it's it's the other ones that kind of mess that up. But uh, in this in this uh, original film, it's a loop. It's a closed loop. And uh, it's it's not about preventing the war, really. In fact, there's a point where Sarah starts to get proactive later in the film that was kind of deleted because um, it tips the hand of what ends up being T2 too early. And I actually really want to talk about that because it's actually um, a really great scene. Uh, But, uh, yeah, the idea of actually being proactive against Skynet defies this level of time travel. The end of the film has to be an acceptance that the future war is going to happen. All Sarah can really do is to have John in seclusion, keep him alive, and get him to the place he needs to be.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, as Sharon said as well, $6.8 million. That's nothing. But we recently also saw the original Mad Max, which is made for four hundred thousand, which really is nothing in now. cinema Wasn't it four hundred thousand
2: Australian?
0: Australian, things? which I've got, I've got more than that in my piggy bank. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it made seventy eight million dollars. And um, Cameron related on the uh, making of materials that he he you know, took this to an executive. And uh, said, you know, it's a, it's a sci-fi. You know, I think it was pretty much done with the film. And he said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's our sci-fi and that's how we bill it in the, uh, the, the marketing. And, he went, and the guy went, no, 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 this ain't a sci-fi said a sci-fi and you, th- you think that this guy's going to be really insightful about what this film actually is no no Star Wars is a sci-fi this is uh what did you say it well, was this' is an action film
2: he said it's an action movie uh, Star Wars is not a sci-fi no it's, not it's, like it's, this is a sci- fi it's
0: space fantasy but yes. basically this this executive was worried about pitching something that people would say
3: you said science fiction this is not science fiction where's the laser guns well
2: what yeah I mean <laughs> what, what Cameron refers to is that this guy appeared to think that if it did didn't have spaceships in it it wasn't sci-fi
0: wow. right wow uh, this and he was is like, maybe the most significant sci-fi ever
2: absolutely so so he sat there going it's got time travel it's got AI it's got murderous robots what
0: more do you want I think you know the reason he couldn't see sci-fi is because of the same reason that people who are standing at the base of Big Ben can't see London it's, it's right there <laughs> they're standing in it
2: possibly so yeah
0: yeah um Josh we've yacked. Do you do you want to um start on, on on what the terminator means to you where where when you first saw it maybe?
3: Um well I I, I watched this series in a bit of a weird order. Okay. Um in that uh, Terminator 2 is actually my first uh, experience yeah, too, of the Terminator <laughs> series. Yeah. And I think I was about, I was way too young for it. Uh I think I was about 11 when I watched Terminator 2. Ooh,
0: and, I, I've, uh, I, I've uh, heard of younger seeing it. Okay. Lyra um, quite enjoyed the second one. <laughs> I'm not a monster, folks. She, I did also... I think I was basically... Sorry to interrupt, Josh. I'll come back to you in a second, but I do want to mention this. Um, it is possible to show a young child the Terminator. You just get them to go in the kitchen during the bit where uh, Schwarzenegger punches his fist through Brian Thompson's chest. Uh, the bit where he performs surgery on himself... Uh, and a, uh, the uh, bit where he massacres the cops, a couple of other scenes, and actually most of the rest of the movie actually kind of, you know, is acceptable sci-fi. Uh, it, you know, back in the day, they they kind of had to make um, movies that would could be trimmed for TV, and if if it was too gruery, then uh, uh, there wouldn't be anything left. <laughs> Uh, see also Die Hard 2 they, they cut so much out of that it's nonsensical on TV But um,
2: Robocop but, also has an yeah. amusing TV edit
0: but uh, the Terminator actually functions pretty well and so you know then when uh, uh, the, the ter- basically I wanted to see, it was a social experiment and I used my own child as a guinea pig when the Terminator the T-800 and T-2 walks down the corridor towards John and pulls out that shotgun, I wanted to to see if Lyra would be surprised because you have to get them in a vacuum at that stage. they put so much marketing out that Arnie was a good guy in T2 that it's almost not possible to actually get somebody who doesn't know he's a goodie. Um, And she actually said no, because the other one looks really, really mean. And I think she'd, she'd actually noted that the Terminator in, in T2 hadn't actually killed anybody. I said, well, he didn't kill that other guy when he punches the policeman. And I think she smelled a rat and said, no, I don't trust this guy. He looks shifty. We got the (laughs) T-1000. So she was actually very pleased. And in fact, Iron Giant Stull really began to uh, want her own Terminator and relate to him. So by the end, when uh, he uh, was lowering into the uh, um, molten steel, she cried her eyes out, which is what you're supposed to do. And yeah, she was humming the Terminator theme like that for weeks after that. She loved the film. Um so yeah, Josh, you were not too young.
3: Okay. <laughs> but I um, And you have a great dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh, so yeah, like it's often spoken like with the uh the alien films, Alien One and, and Aliens. Um like the relationship between those two films, it's often it's quite frequently talked about how, like those two films are in a completely different genre in a lot of ways. Like Alien is a horror movie, and Aliens is much more of an action thriller. Yeah. Um, and yeah, going back to Terminator after Terminator Two is, um, it's quite a shock to the system actually because this is a much darker, much I think it's a much more tense movie and a lot Mm -hmm. scarier. Um, Seeing seeing Arnie be much more um, what's what's the word? Just cold blooded, cold blooded, and just completely lacking. Because towards the end of Terminator 2, not so much the first half, but towards the end of Terminator 2, it felt like he was starting to learn what empathy was and starting to learn what you know you know emotion and all of that stuff is well yeah Even in though, the
0: uh, the uh, extended edition of the film you get a very good reason why he suddenly started yeah. to exhibit these changes but in the, in the theatrical cut no one had a clue why yeah but carry on
3: but we'll get to that in the next of one. Course, but, yeah. but in this film he is just dead eyed he's just completely dead eyed there's no soul there whatsoever like a shock Yeah, he is, and um, I I was kind of reminded, actually, um, going back to it, like, Like, the Winter Soldier really reminds me of the Terminator, although that character becomes much more sympathetic later on. Or like RoboCop, yeah. Yeah, in the early stages of that film, the way that he just comes for you, just, he never stops. Like, he doesn't, sometimes he, you know, he's running full pelt towards you and you're terrified, but sometimes he knows he's going to get you and he just strolls along at an even pace and that's, What's terrifying about um, Mm. the Terminator in this film is the idea that he's just constantly coming towards you. There's nothing you can do to stop him. No weapon that um, they possess at this point in time can truly kill this creature. Um, It's it's, it's terrifying, this movie, Mm. in a way that Terminator 2 never is. Yeah,
0: even in a uh, uh, even though you know the way the scenario plays itself out, yes. uh, it's it's more the concept that's terrifying. Yes, yes, it's it's not that you're you know oh god is, is Sarah going to escape this one? Well, of course she is. You know she is. It's more Christ, what would I do if I was there, yeah. or, or or in a similar situation and how relentless this is.
2: Yeah. It's about, I think the stakes are to do with what will be lost in the process as well. Because, oh, yeah. like you say, you, you know Sarah's going to come out of this um well i say you know you have an instinct that sarah is going to come out of this um and
0: see it for the first time and you really Mm. like i don't know who could know nothing about this film but there's got to be a few people out there
2: that's a good point actually i've got to react
0: to the terminator
2: yeah i mean i've got a few (laughs) notes here about how there's the the intercutting with the um, the terminator's perspective um And um, the fact that they have these threads in it that kind of make you feel like the story could be being told by Skynet, mm. um, so that like the, the credits being the the green computer type and the um, the fact that the music and the themes and everything are so uh, mechanistic and so metallic. Um, Jesus, it,
0: computer folklore.
2: Yeah, possibly the Matrix stories it tells its children. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, speaking of
0: which, the Matrix. If you want to look at something that's absolutely in the family tree of this, mm,
2: absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the the idea that um, that you, you're being constantly pursued by this this thing that just won't stop, that is implacable, and will keep coming no matter what, and no matter what, and no matter what. It is that sense of um, uh, you know the, those dreams that you have at two in the morning when you you wake up but only part way and you can't move. Mm. You know, you you've got something coming after you and you need to get away, but everything's slowed down to treacle and you just can't move fast enough um, to, to get away from this thing. And it evokes that feeling so strongly. Um, which is one of the most impressive things about it, I think. It's, yeah. it's I mean, I've talked about this before, and a, and a lot of it comes from watching things at ridiculous hours of the morning when I'm incredibly sleep-deprived anyway. Um, but that that feeling of otherworldliness, that feeling of being not quite real but hyper-real at the same time, um, and it, it makes for something which is incredibly effective and will stick with you. And I think Cameron does have that gift. Whatever else people might want to say about him, he has the ability to communicate um, his stories in that way.
3: Hmm. And another thing that makes the Terminator as a, a... a creation so terrifying is is the fact that you just you can't talk it down whatsoever you can't even get it monologuing mm. you know like the the Terminator doesn't have an ego no, I will tell it you my
0: entire plan <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> it, it does it's not here to show off it's not here to show you how brilliant it is and how clever its evil scheme is no it is a like a machine is the ultimate pragmatist he sees an opportunity to take you out he's taking you out mm. it, in in, in you know no time at all and i i find that more terrifying than anything just the idea that i have no time to react to this thing the moment it sees an opportunity it's taking it. it's not going to hesitate it's not going to think about it for a second or you know you know tell me that he did some horrible stuff to my family or what have you it's just gonna go go for its opportunity when it sees it and it's terrifying
0: your psychology is for shit against it, basically. You can't yes. use social skills. You can't outwit it. You can't um, be clever. You can only use your instincts to, to get away in some other way. It's it's escape or fight. That's the only thing.
2: Mm. Which, in a way, makes it far more terrifying than the uh, the refined sociopath that seems to be you know, the villain du jour at the moment.
0: Yeah. I know something you don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, Terminator's never going to say that to you. It knows it knows something you don't know. It's got bazillions of lines of code I, in its head.
0: Ironically, Mads Mickelson would have made a really great Terminator. Yes, he would. He's got that dead-eyed stare.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I know something you don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> the skulls motif, because you mentioned them before, and you also mentioned the shadow. There seems to be that like, the fact that the Terminator endoskeleton is a horrible representation of the human skeleton as run through the filter of a machine
2: mm. well this is this is something that really interests me actually because uh, whenever people um look at robots i say whenever there are obviously notable exceptions but most of the time when people are looking at, at robotic life being created and um, an artificial intelligence it is put into some kind of body that looks like people yeah. or at least looks as close to people as we can get it. And sometimes there's a narrative reason for this. So, for example, with the Terminators, it's because they're infiltrators and the idea was to get them into the human um, uh, resistance areas and, and be able to kill them. But thinking about sort of its, its, uh, the framework of them and the way they move around, it actually kind of makes sense that to interact with the human world, we have adapted our world to us yeah that's what we do that's our skill that's what our brain gives us that other animals don't have we don't have to worry so much about adapting ourselves to the natural environment anymore because we change the natural environment if we then create something that's going to operate within that world it's kind of got to move like us and it's kind of got to have the the functions that we have because our world has been adapted to that i mean
0: So you're saying they couldn't have have sent Wall-E as the Terminator. Exactly. Or a radio-controlled beach ball.
2: Yeah, well, Johnny Five (laughs) as well was the the example I was thinking of. But, I mean, you've got um, a a human-shaped skeleton Mm. because something that needs to walk over uneven ground um, needs to have knee joints. And that little um, film clip that they had of the, the robot that was learning to walk that was the first thing that occurred to me that it had these little feet that were rolling um over each other and i thought why haven't they given it knees that would immediately increase its ability to be able to move flexibly mm. um, but there are things that you could do with a um, a robot that would give it advantages over humans it doesn't have to have both of its optical cameras facing forwards an eye in the back of its head would be quite helpful.
0: Yeah, but, but Skynet it
2: doesn't have that.
0: Skynet designed the endoskeletons to mm. be infiltration units. They, yeah. to paraphrase Bill, the Terminator T800 or T101 series is Skynet's satire on us as humans. Mm. It okay. uh, it sees us and says, "This is what you are." Creates a copy uh, and then sends them out hoping that uh they can be uh, convincing enough to find us at our weakest
2: Mm. i do wonder though if there is also not an element of um the cylons yes and the way they perceive their parents their creators and emulate them even as they have contempt for them they still have something deep down that wants to be them that they can't get rid of
0: see that's bsg the 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 new series taking uh the the premise of uh the terminator and taking it to the next psychological level
2: Mm, indeed i mean one of the things that i that struck me when you see um arnie approaching um the uh, by the observatory he's you've got this naked man walking along the street and you see somebody who's naked and your immediate assumption is a they're not hiding anything and b they're vulnerable but he is completely invulnerable at this point, And he's actually wearing a man suit. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a humanity that he hasn't got that he is faking without even having to think about it. And that's the only way that he manages to get so close to those guys. Because drunk as they are, if just the endos- uh, endoskeleton was approaching them, I think they would piss it and run. But they see him naked. They think he's vulnerable. They think that he can. T- they can take it.
3: I I think like depicting the Terminator as naked at first is a great and and also having Carl Reese naked as well. Um, you get to you get to see kind of the difference in how they uh you know process information. Like Carl Rees's first instinct is to get clothes to cover his shame. Like he like being naked is not like that's a shameful thing for human beings to do in public. Like we're like, no, that's not okay. Whereas the Terminator, like it's not really bothered about the fact that it's naked at all. It just wants to blend in, mm-hmm. and I think that's what lends it, it, like, lends the Terminator its its power. Even in like what for most of us would be a moment of vulnerability, is that it feels no shame whatsoever, and mm-hmm. that kind of informs a lot of its actions um, throughout the film. In that it doesn't feel bad about anything it does it just wants it approaches everything in a pure pure logical fashion uh, there is no place for any kind of emotion in the equation whatsoever and how and like i i i think that that kind of have having these two characters kind of be in a moment of like vulnerability in the way that they are it really neatly demonstrates kind of why um the terminator is such a threat in that carl reese has things like there are things that carl reese will never do because he's human he empathizes he he feels and like there are like there is no limits for the terminator Mm. there's just nothing that it is isn't willing to do to achieve its objective.
2: in fact you've got a perfect example of that in um in carl saying to sarah that because the new style Terminators look human, he couldn't know for certain who the Terminator was until he tried to kill Sarah. He couldn't attack anybody until they had committed an act that made it obvious that they were the Terminator. Whereas the Terminator has no such compunction. He kills two of the Sarah Connors before he gets to the right one.
3: Yeah. Exactly.
0: It feels wrong to talk about hobo pants at this point. But... (laughs) Kyle Reese wears the same pair of hobo pants the whole way through the movie. Uh, he uh, uh, takes them off that uh, uh, tramp at the beginning, and uh, they appear to be covered in paint stains. And um, for some reason, the term, this son of a bitch took my pants! stuck in my head, aged 18, when I was on a, uh, a, a college vacation with a bunch of um, college friends. And, uh, classmates, and for some reason, that son of a bitch took my pants just stuck. And so now, every time I see that scene, it takes me right back to 1998. And just saying that all night in a hotel room over and over again while watching the Terminator. Also, I'm only borrowing your Humvee from The Rock. (laughs) Anyway, I can only hope that, uh, what's his name? That really tedious guy in, uh who was uh, John McClane's son in Die Hard? Him. I can only hope that he puts on the exact same pair of pants and, and never takes them off in Terminator Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope they're oh, stained okay. with urine. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, as I said earlier, the, uh, the the punks at the beginning, this is just some details. Uh, you got Bill Paxton there um, going, fuck you, who I never noticed until I watched this on Blu-ray, has tire tracks on his face. Um is uh, the only actor who has been killed by a Terminator and a predator and an alien. It's a dubious honor. Um, I think um, thinking about it, uh, ye- oh, oh, hang on, hang on. No, wait. Lance Henriksen was technically killed by the queen. She pretty much finished him off, and then uh, and he gets killed by the Terminator in this. And then in Alien vs Predator, the first one, um, that he rather foolishly attacks a predator and then gets killed by that. Okay, so there's two guys. It seems like all these little details that I've got written down are very, very shallow when we're held up into to what we've been talking about. But I kind of need we need to take a break from the, the super deep thinking. Um, the the bit where um, uh, they're looking at uh, news footage of um, was it two women or just one woman called Sarah Connor?
2: It's one to start with. Um, She sees one on the news report. She doesn't find out uh, about the second one until later.
0: Yeah, okay, right. So she she, she sees one. Her waitress friend says, you're dead, honey. Which, I don't know, feels like it was oddly prescient since when um, uh, Reese talks to her. It's as this saint. Effectively, she uh, you know she was able to uh, uh, give birth to John Connor, to raise John Connor, to teach John Connor, and then to not be there for to help him through the war. So effectively, uh, he informs her of her um, vast, vast not not even potential achievements before they've actually happened, which is something that is I think singular only to sci-fi and uh, time travel. Type movies because you can't specifically really specifically time that.
2: travel. Yeah, because yeah. I mean that she gets she gets really cross with him when he starts doing that because at mm. that point she is not capable of thinking fourth dimensionally. Um, and I mean, if you think about it, to say to somebody you're dead, fourth dimensionally, we all are.
0: Yeah. In the you mean in the Sylvia Plath sense?
2: Well, just in the sense that at a point in the future, mm. you can say that of anybody.
0: We are all corpses waiting to cool down Back to hobo pants. Um, <laughs> the the murder of Ginger I always found slightly too sadistic. That was another one where, you know, Lyra, leave the room for a bit, please. Um, it's it's the fact that it slows down and it's terrifying, but it's like, you know, she runs away. And then basically at that point, um, you know, it, it, it should really cut away. But then, you know, she gets shot in the back and then the Terminator marches slowly across the floor while she's crawling along in agony and her fingers are clawing at the carpet. And I think... It's I suppose it's supposed to really sell you the danger that Sarah's in. But now that when you know that Sarah gets out of it, it then seems um, unwarranted. But, it. you know, I I. am uh, reacting too strongly to sadism these days anyway.
2: Well, I think it, you kind of have to look at it in the context of how the, the other death scenes occur and. Hmm. Um, and and it's that, again, it's that slowing down to that dream pace crawl. It happens when the first Sarah Connor's killed. It happens when Ginger's killed. Interestingly enough, it doesn't happen when he throws Matt through the door. Nah. <laughs> so, so I think there is a little bit of a let's linger rather longer than we should on the female deaths. Yes. Um, which is not fantastic, but, you know.
0: I Not suppose it's harder to uh, key up Matt with perfect. the uh, with Sarah because ultimately uh, the, the Terminator at that point believed Ginger was Sarah.
2: Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, and in fact, in the earlier scene when uh, he shoots the Sarah Connor number one, uh, yeah, number one that the one just living in the neighbourhood, and he just sort of shows up at her door.
2: Yeah, we we don't see the death of the second
0: one. Yeah, uh, I think basically he, he he holds up his gun and she goes, oh, and then it cuts away. Uh, the original cut, he shoots her and then he calmly goes back and it's a really long shot. He, he walks back to the car and you see everyone in the neighborhood in the background going, oh, God, that guy's got a gun. I think he just shot that woman. And everyone's panicking in the background and he gets in the uh, car uh, methodically and drives away. And it didn't work for their original take on it. But now in, in context, it actually looks like a much more uh, of a... Um, carefully uh directed film it's the sort of thing that anton chagall would do in no country for old men just switching from one task to to another
2: Mm. well as josh was saying about the the complete lack of emotional response that that you see in the terminator that's it it demonstrates that not only does he have no compunction about the actual killing Mm. he doesn't have any concerns about anybody else seeing him do it yeah He's not trying to hide any of this. It's it's all about the mission. It's all about getting this uh, assassination done. Anything surrounding that, including uh, his own survival and any self-protection of, of his, um, his own being, is secondary.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean what, what are the police going to do? Like, arrest him and prosecute him for murder? Like, what, 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 do, what does the Terminator care about leaving evidence? Like, as long as the mission's Indeed. accomplished, it might as well just shut down. Like, I, it doesn't yeah. care. I
0: have a feeling that if he did a GTA-style spree, then by the time he gets to five stars, they'd be able to finish
3: him off. Oh yeah,
2: they, I, there would be the missiles mean, involved. The,
3: the, the thing is, yeah, absolutely, you could take him down. But the the point is, he doesn't care. Like that's that's what's scary is that. Sure, you, you could stop him at some point. You could, you know, get all the evidence to prove he's like this horrible person and what have you, and mount a he's military. He's a horrible <laughs> person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's an interesting trial. Like he's a really bad man. It's... How yes. do you play? Oh,
2: and not he set guilty. off all the metal detectors when he came into the building.
0: <laughs> Jesus, the trial of the Terminator—that never happened.
2: No, of course not. <laughs> You need more than daredevil to get you we out that wasting
0: one. time there's always an imperative in all of the uh, the films that there's always a race and there's always um a stalking presence and a uh you know an attempt to, to flee there's certain motifs that have been replicated again and again to the point where they're never going to do a film where uh like a, a terminator avengers gets together and goes right now we've got the government's help here we all now know about the uh, impending menace and it it it's always going to stay small scale. It's always going to stay like a small resistance. It'll never be a widely known thing. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that there that there's some level of uh, breaking out of this mold because it is a mold. But
2: um... well, part I think part of the problem with that is the is the time loop thing. Is the fact that. As soon as a certain um, percentage of the population gets to know about these death machines that keep getting sent back in time, they're just going to go, you know what, Skynet, that's not happening.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the uh, public all taking part in uh, uh, um, legalized madness, when they're at the gun shop, huh, uh, and uh, uh, the guy who played Murray Futterman in Gremlins says, uh, you can take the shotguns and the rifles, no problem, but uh, you're going to need a few, uh, uh, like a, a two-week waiting... 15-day wait. 15-day wait on the handguns. And I asked you why that was. because I I think I knew, but I wanted to hear someone say it in words. And uh, what are the words that express why there's a 15-day wait on handguns but not shotguns?
2: Well, my guess is that it's to prevent people from having an argument with somebody, walking into a store, buying a very small gun that they can secrete about their person, going back to that person and shooting them in the head. Using a larger gun... Requires a bit more forethought and a bit more determination to carry it through. A handgun is something that you can almost kill somebody with without giving it that much of your attention.
0: Yeah. You posited when I asked you to explain that their rationale is nutters who are going to go on killing sprees after 15 days will still be going to go on killing sprees. So why make them wait? Just... (laughs) Just uh, ask the people who might otherwise be committing uh, crime passionnel. Uh, yeah,
2: it's it's to give people fifteen days to calm down. I think basically.
3: Fuck me. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, uh, guns are bad. Maybe make them illegal. <laughs> <laughs> or at the very
2: least, did. here have a certificate that you have to sign and provide ID to demonstrate that. Ooh, you might go and do something bad with it, but at least we'll know where to find you afterwards.
0: Uh, Folks, watch John Oliver talk about uh, uh, gun violence and Australia on uh, YouTube, if you want a little bit of uh, an example of how this actually did work in a country, although it is on the other side of the world. And uh, I believe the congressman from America says, well, you know, in the real world, which (laughs) apparently Australia isn't part of, (laughs) you've got to have guns. So, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, this film kind of like metal gear solid is like guns are bad guns are terrible for look at these guns <laughs> really this is one it though? this one's slightly less but i mean yeah
2: two two a bit more so yeah
0: two is a bit kind of you know well you know it's a mini gun and look how fucking cool it is but he didn't kill anyone so it's okay yeah.
2: but, i mean two is more of an action movie this very definitely in the sci-fi camp, there is no point where you're looking at Kyle Reese in his paint-stained hobo pants thinking, man, that guy is so cool, I just want to be him.
0: <laughs> Especially when, when he loses the overcoat, he actually looks like a member of Dexie's Midnight Runners.
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. There
0: is that too. Uh, it's, it's a really unfortunate outfit that it, it just doesn't quite work. Although, but then it...
2: that's the point. He's, he's supposed to look out of place mm. and... Mismatched, and you know, wearing uh, inappropriate, scruffy clothes isn't something that would occur to him to be strange. That's that's not out of the ordinary for him. And if you look at a lot of the the ways that he behaves as well, he's trying to mimic the Terminator. Mm. He's trying to act without. Um, compunction and do the mission and not have any concern for his own personal safety. Um, But he's got these uh, emotions and this human side that he can't completely get rid of. He can't cover it up. When he arrives, even, the first thing we see on his face is pain. And he's curled up on the floor in agony.
1: Mm.
2: That's what tells us, effectively, that he's human. And in fairness, when you watch T2 and um, Robert Patrick turns up, Blatantly not human.
0: Yeah, because
2: yeah. he's not feeling any pain.
0: I think that's what tipped Lyra off as well. Because mm, yeah. she, she, you know, she got used to Kyle Reese, even though she didn't really like him all that much, because he's way too intense and not much fun. Um, she, she got that he was a totally a human and, and very prey to all of that stuff. Uh, but what he, he does is. This performance in 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 this film from Bean is fantastic by the way uh even more so if you if you watch these uh, deleted scenes there 's this one breakdown moment which is tear jerking uh, but the um th- he passes this on to Sarah uh, and I think you were you were talking about the fact that basically pretty much he he puts the seed of bravery and strength into her and it happens to take place during the sex scene. But he also passes on all of that intensity, all of that. I'm the only person who knows about this. All of that. I'm on a mission. That no, but like he, you know, she becomes a soldier as a result. It's like a, a, a sexually transmitted mission.
2: Mm. Well, I think I mean that these are not qualities that um, that he has invented for her. I think it's something that sense of persistence and um, an inner strength that. She- she had anyway what he's imparted into her i think is a a sense of how necessary it is to bring that to the fore i mean the woman's a waitress that is a hard job that is a tough gig to do her resilience is being tested with
0: arsehole diner patrons and arsehole kids putting ice cream in her apron
2: absolutely i mean she is not a girl who although she is very normal and when you you first see her the the whole sort of you know pastel outfit and um, the, the little moped she's riding and um all that kind of thing she is so normal
0: it's the only time the music is soft as well
2: yeah absolutely it's a, it's a little bit sitcom-ish i thought yeah. um, but um but yeah i mean she's she's very normal she's not Mary Sewish. Her life is not perfect. Everything is not wonderful. She has to work. She has to try. She gets let down by dates. She has, you know, love- a, a roommate who has a far more successful relationship than she does.
0: I love how the, um, <laughs> that contrasts so much with John racing along his little trail bike, listening to Guns N' Roses, not giving a fuck about anybody.
1: Mm,
2: indeed. But he's not had a normal childhood, has he? Oh, because he's not oh. been, he's been brought up yeah. by her in, in knowing what was coming. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, she she is that very... Um, it's more that she's unknowing, I think, at the beginning. She's naive. It's not that those qualities aren't there. It's that they haven't had the trial by fire that's yeah. brought them to the fore. And I don't think it's just Kyle that brings that out in her. It's what she goes through.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So by
2: the end of yeah. it, she's tempered like steel.
3: Yeah. yeah. I, I mean... Sarah's uh, greatest strength as a character is her adaptability. I feel she is a she's very able to perceive a threat and then change up and change her tactics. She does this more so in Terminator Two uh, when she's given new information, uh, like you know about how you know. Fate can Dice. be changed and stuff yeah. like that. She hears about Dyson. She Dice changes and-
0: the film. I'll, yeah. I'll talk about that in, the, in next week's episode. But she basically, the, that film was going to end with the T-1000 tracking them to the desert. Yeah. And then they have a big shootout in the uh, around the caravans. And it was going to be a nice uh, hour and 45 minute tight ending. Um, and somehow they were going to like kill him with crashing trucks and flames or something. But she changes it. Yeah. She she goes out and and and, uh, and tries to to kill Dyson and a series of events occur to alter history uh, for, because of that. Yeah, and um, it gives us a whole extra like hour of movie.
3: Yeah, and and it's that adaptability and that like you, you know proactiveness in Sarah Connor that I think has made her such an iconic character alongside hmm. Ripley. Um, she she isn't a capable soldier at this point in the in her arc she's just a, a regular person like you know you or me but she's she's capable of learning quickly like she learns everything that reese part, in, imparts to her very quickly and is able to adapt and by the end of the film we get a glimpse of what she becomes in terminator 2 this hardened warrior
0: Back to the Terminator and the economy of movement. We're going to probably be jumping about all over the place because there's just so much in this film to yeah. really me- to mention, and we can't really get it all done in one go and then like not without forgetting bits. But um, a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of dismissed Schwarzenegger's performance in this as well. You know, all he had to act was an unfeeling machine. You try acting like a robot; it's actually really difficult. Yeah. Try acting like you don't feel anything about anything, without actually feeling that. And you know, you, basically, it's it's really hard to maintain. But also think about the fact that every single one of your movements has to be calculated and has to be economical to the point where you know it was coming down to right. How should I shoot this person? And you know, it, it seems like well, it's very simple. You just pull, the, put up the gun, shoot, and then and uh, and then you know holster the weapon or something like that but no it's actually like there are three movements to it and that's what a machine would do and then they would return it to their side like that it would not have that human quality that uh uh, chaos to it or that um well-practiced kind of gunslinging it's uh it's a machine extending part of itself and then retracting it yeah And uh, Shorts, I think, was actually really serious about this. Uh, Originally, uh, was it uh, that actually Lance Henriksen was going to play the Terminator?
2: That was who Cameron had in mind. um, And I think it was the... Somebody at the studio said, "You, you cut Arnold Schwarzenegger is like the name of the moment. Yeah, in action, he needs to be attached to this. Otherwise, it's not going to go forward."
0: Having just done Conan, mm. just so folks have an idea yeah. of uh, where this was, and um, so
2: uh, so Cameron went for this meeting with him, basically thinking he really didn't want to want him for the park because he really wanted Lance Hendrickson for it, um, and the only way that he was going to be able to to have it not turn out that way was to pick. up fight with him (laughs) so that um schwarzenegger wouldn't want to work on the project Mm -hmm. um but in the conversation that they subsequently had they got on really really well um and uh so cameron started thinking actually he'd be really good as the terminator but um and then when he called Schwarzenegger to talk about it afterwards he'd been thinking the same thing but his agent wasn't that keen because the guy only had six lines Yeah. so it was really a case of the two of them convinced that he was the right person to play the Terminator then trying to convince everyone else
0: yeah in fact, uh, Sharon you remember Hercules in New York don't you yes yes it's a nanar folks if you want to see a film that's absolutely ridiculous it's a nanar but that was actually 1970 so 14 years before this film And then he was in Stay Hungry, Pumping Iron, the villain as Handsome Stranger, the Jane Mansfield story as Mickey Haggerty, and Conan the Barbarian, which is the first time that he was actually an an action star. And Conan the Destroyer was the same year, and it was shit, as the Terminator. So basically, this was his second proper breakout role. This was the one that really put him on the map. And um, it's actually... It's the films where he has to um get really upset about things that tend to be the films where he doesn't do his better performances, <laughs> especially the comedies he's He's a man ill suited to comedy, yeah, and he's done far too many of those to really you know to have taken that on board.
2: I think it depends on the comedy though, True lies was good, yeah, he was good in it.
0: And we've already said Last Action Hero is actually kind of an underrated film mm. uh, in he, premise. He
2: doesn't—he doesn't come across well in stupid comedy.
0: Yeah, Oddly enough. And uh, I'm not a fan of twins. And the less said about Junior, the better.
1: Mm. Jingle
0: all the way. Oh, jingle. <laughs> <all the> way. <laughs> but I mean, you know, even just his action films are very hit and miss. We couldn't even get through the sixth day. We got so bored. So, um. It, ultimately, he is a man who's done a lot of films and was incredibly bankable at one stage, and and to a degree still is. But he's very—he's got that—he's like he, tried a bit of everything, you know, which actually is is kind of admirable. Because if you just—he just literally did films where he has great big guns and shoots things, he'd have ended up as Dolph Lundgren. Oh yeah, Lance Henriksen's original take on the uh, machine was going to be that he could blend in with anyone, and uh, his uh, he'd really like taken it to heart, and he went around with tin foil on his teeth and like climbed up fire escapes, and he was just really creeping people out, and because uh, because that's just how committed he was to actually being this guy, and I actually do think that uh, Henriksen's Terminator would have been really something to see. Oh yeah. Uh, But uh, it wouldn't necessarily have made this the film that everybody then knew about. And certainly people wouldn't have been desperate to see Henriksen come back and be the good Terminator in T2.
3: I mean, that that's the problem, is that he would be a great villain, but I don't think he'd be a great hero character. He yeah. he has that look about him where you go, I can't trust that guy. hes yeah. And that's why his character works in Aliens, because yeah. your instinct is not to trust him, because he looks <laughs> shifty. Not um,
0: only is he looking shifty, but you've got uh, Ash playing on the back of your mind. You're like, you know what? There's like, well, all of these guys are going to be the same, and they've been sent by the company, so... Yeah.
3: But, yeah, like you say, I, I think that version of the film could have been equally as great. Just it would have been a very different film than what we have here.
0: Mm. As it is, the Terminator loses his humanity eyebrows first, and then just slowly over the time it gets... Like, as with Sarah, uh, her... Um, it's not her humanity gets stripped, stripped away. If, if anything, it's the thing she's left with. Um, but she tries to shed it herself in t2 when she herself becomes the terminator
2: it's it's the other way around she puts it on uh, yeah. with the the tank top and the gun belt and the sunglasses and the hat she is building she the terminator around her as yeah. a protective um a protective thing that she becomes to shield herself from what she's going through with the terminator in this it's the reverse it's his humanity or the the fake humanity that he's carrying with him um this pretend carapace is gradually stripped away mm, the mask mm, yeah
3: yeah oh uh, yeah i was gonna say that like there, there's a uh... There's a greater uh, duality here with the, you know, the Terminator having his humanity stripped away, the flesh stripped away from metal, whereas mm. Sarah is having metal applied onto flesh. Mm. Her skin is becoming harder and more uh, dense and tough, and yeah, she, yes. that ends with her having, you know, in the in the sequel having this exterior of a Terminator. Ultimately, the humanity is still underneath, and that's how, why she cannot go through with what she's decided to do. But yeah, like like you say, Sharon, there there is there is very much a uh, I, I do feel like Sarah is kind of putting a Terminator around herself. An exoskeleton rather than an
0: endoskeleton.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
2: and again, exactly. like like I say, that's something that, that Kyle tries to do as well. Um, and, you know, there's there's this little back and forth of the, the Terminators are mimicking humans and the humans are mimicking Terminators. And it's all part of this protective um, circle that they're all trying, which is entirely self-defeating in the end.
1: Because they're,
2: they're not being true. To, they're not being who they really are. They're tr- all trying to be something else.
0: Technically, Kyle has to function as secondary function is an infiltration unit. He has to blend in with uh, a 1984 society and he's only passingly good at it. He's way too intense. And when the police start questioning him, oh, there's no way he can hide who he truly is. Mm. He just blurts it all out at them.
2: He's only passingly good at anything, in all fairness. I mean, one of the things that I, I noticed watching it this time is that... There's this whole thing about Kyle's the only person who can really help Sarah at this point. But it's got nothing to do with his skill or his abilities to to Mm. shoot or anything like that. He's only moderately good at that kind of thing. All his flashbacks to his... Um, experiences in the, in the ashes of the future war. He's not winning that fight. He's getting no. trapped. He's getting killed. He's losing colleagues. But ultimately, because he's the only person who acknowledges the truth of what's going on, that's why he's the, the best person to protect her, simply because he's the only person who will admit what's really going on.
0: There is something very uneasy about those dreams, actually, because uh, when he's um, trapped in the burning uh, truck... And he is like centimeters away from the flames and screaming. How the hell did he get out of that? Because um, he, uh, he does have burns on him. But unless he was saved from that truck by another soldier, like a second after we cut away from it. Um, that would have killed him.
2: Mm. Well, you you speculated, didn't you, that it's possible that those flashbacks are not really flashbacks, that they're they're just dreams, and it's more his fears coming to the fore than
0: They're cobbling together fragments of things he heard happen to people uh, and uh, things he encountered while he was uh, um, a soldier. Mm. And uh, he's absolutely convincing as somebody who has been traumatised.
1: Yeah.
0: There's almost nothing soft left and um, in this deleted scene I do want to talk about it's when they're at the motel they've got away from the cops and just before the Terminator reacquires her uh, Sarah calls um, her mother and then tells her to go to a cabin and I love you too sweetheart uh, but then she goes through the phone book and finds Cyberdyne, and then go, runs to Reese and says, "Right, I've just got an idea. Let's uh, let's go to these uh, people, and you know, we'll we'll take them down, and then Skynet can't happen. Boom, brilliant. Then we'll we'll just start watching movies, and everything will be great. We can we can fix this with our clever human knowledge." And he's incredulous to it he's like i don't think we can really actually change things and she gets really upset with him and runs away and he almost shoots her out of desperation of not knowing what to do but that makes him break down because he nearly shot sarah connor a the mother of the future b, his mission c, the woman he loves as much as kyle can love he's definitely obsessed with her uh but he the the, the extremely powerful feelings he's almost childlike about it and this is in the middle of um green countryside and he breaks down staring at it and says i shouldn't see this all of this because he's only known a world that's black and rubble and burning and death and misery so it's almost like you know when he's out of the city and he you know he could just about hold it together back then but now he's actually shown the beauty of the world before he existed it just breaks him yeah. And um, they, Cameron took it out because he needs to kind of break down later in the hotel room when he says, "You know, I came through time for you," and then uh, pulls away. It's a far more gentle breakdown, but um, I, I would really kind of like a, 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 a like what would this be a thirty. 31st anniversary (laughs) Uh, Blu-ray extended edition with this scene reinstated, because it's really fantastic.
1: No, put away the gun. I can get a Sarai. I can. Look what I found. What's that? Cyberdyne systems, isn't that it? What about it? Listen to this.
2: They developed this revolutionary new thing. This molecular
1: Molecular memory. Right?
2: So they become hotshot computer guys, so they get to develop this thing for the government, right?
1: Right, yeah, that's the way it was told to me. So we can 86 the bastard. We can blow it up. It'll never happen. No, it's tactically dangerous. We lay low. No, Reese, think it through. We can prevent the war. There's nobody else. If we go to somebody official, we end up in jail again, and he's got us
2: again. We've got to do it ourselves.
1: That's not my mission.
2: Listen, understand. I am not a military objective. I'm a person, and you don't own me.
1: Let's go. Fuck you! Let me go. Sarah! 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 No! No! Let's go! Sarah! No! Uh. Oh, it! Go ahead, Show. That's smart!
2: Jesus Christ, Reese, don't you see that I am scared?
1: I don't want to spend my whole life waiting for that thing to catch up to me. Always looking over my shoulder, wondering if I left some tiny clue behind. Reese. Grace, I don't belong here. I wasn't meant to see this. It's like a dream. This and this. And you, it's so beautiful, it hurts Sarah. it hurts so bad, you can't understand, it's gone, all gone, all of it, it's gone, well, we can change it, Kyle.
2: We have to at least try. There is no fate but what we make for ourselves, right? Come on, kiddo. What do you say? Okay. It is very, very moving. I think that part of the reason it detracts from um, that scene in the hotel is it, it... it takes away a little bit from the the love story.
1: Yeah.
2: And, I mean, Linda Hamilton said in an interview later on that, that she felt that, that the romance at the core of it was part of why the film had such wide appeal. And I think mm. they, they would have run the risk of losing that if they'd had this scene, because it makes Kyle's um, uh, professed love for Sarah not less real, but less specific it's yeah. more she It's is, almost
0: like he's in love with her world.
2: Exactly. He's he's in love with her as an idol. He's in love with her as I mean there's um one of the things about these films I I got hold of the novels um and the novelizations of, of films used to be somewhat more in depth than the films themselves, because the the writers were usually working from earlier drafts of the script, where mm. um, th- key key bits didn't get cut, um, and also they had to fill things in with narrative that wasn't necessarily there. So you get the inference of the, the writer as well. And um, it's a long start now. It is a bit, yeah. But one of the things that was mentioned in that was uh, the you know the photograph that uh, Kyle has of Sarah which is revealed to be the picture that's of her that's taken at the end. Um, a us,
0: kid. Quattro.
2: Exactly. And he loses it and he gets burned. There's, there's a mention in the book that these photographs, there's, there's thousands of them. And they give them out to the soldiers as like, and they wear them like crucifixes. They keep them in their in their pockets like little icons of Virgin Mary.
0: Virgin Mary, yeah. yeah. Than, uh, um, Jesus. Um,
2: but but they're like a religious thing. And Sarah has become um, almost the focus of their faith. And I think that emphasised for me the idea that Kyle may think he's in love with her, but like you say, it's more to do with what has been lost, that he's longing for. Um, You know, she she represents everything that he's never had. Um, And it's it's a very powerful scene when they do come together in the motel because that sense of fulfilment, however briefly he has it, he has it. Mm -hmm. And it's very strong.
0: I think we skipped over the uh, police station scene. That it may seem like just the obligatory action sequence where, um uh, you know, just like you know, lots of guns going off, lots of people getting shot. But actually, it serves to show how little help civilization can be to Sarah, because this is the point of protection. This is the absolute pinnacle of where she could go to be safe in that city.
1: Yeah.
0: And he just walks straight through there. He's yeah. gonna march through here. He'll wade through here and shove his hand in her throat and pull her fucking heart out.
3: He pretty much almost does. Yeah. And it, and these guys are trained professionals. You know they mm. know how to engage a target, and they're just mowed down. Like it's mm. it's another example of a scene. I mean, when we were talking about uh, the raptors in Jurassic Park, they deliberately show you. Um, the raptors killing one of the most capable people yeah. there to demonstrate how scary they are. And it's the same with this scene. Like these people are capable, like they can engage in combat scenarios uh, with relative ease. Yet this thing is tearing them to shreds. Yeah. And then you realize, Oh wait, Sarah Connor has to deal with that thing. Yeah How, how the hell is she going to take that thing out?
0: Yeah. Ultimately, what it requires is, is a sacrifice, as I said earlier. It's, it's, not, um, it's very symbolic that Kyle, to, do, to take it out, has to use a pipe bomb and has to die. Um, it's, it's, it's not by choice, obviously. He, he wanted to live, and that's possibly what's so bittersweet about it. But um, it, 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 it could never be just, and now I shoot you with my shotgun, and then ha-ha, boom. It's Even, like, at the end of T2, there has to be a sacrifice, even though the the actual taking out of the T-1000 isn't the direct uh, sacrifice there. It's uh, that the Protector has to die for his subject. And on a side note, if the Terminator and or Kyle doesn't die at the end of Terminator Genesis, they fucked up.
1: Hmm.
0: Because, I mean, they got sequels coming. So, um... You know, they almost don't need to kill this Terminator this time, and this is the first Terminator where they've already greenlit sequels. So it's like there's no tension here. Yeah.
2: And if they do die, they'll just build more. Yeah. There's also, I think, as well as the sacrifice, um, there's the power of three comes comes out in this, um, and towards the end, there are three occasions where they think they have killed. The Terminator, mm, yeah. um, and it's not until the final crushing that Sarah has to administer herself that he is actually dead. So they've got. And that's
0: a horror movie trope: the yeah. creature's not dead.
2: It's well, indeed, but that that idea that the thing that is coming after you, you will have to try three times um, mm. before you will succeed. So they've got Let's the pipe bomb the in the, the truck. Um, they've got the pipe bomb in the truck. Uh, they've got the pipe bomb on the stairs. And then finally, Sarah gets it in the press. But also, it has tried three times to kill Sarah Connor.
0: Yeah. As in, oh, hang on. Technoir. No, no, no. As
2: in, Sarah Connor 1, Sarah Connor 2. Oh,
0: good point. This yeah. is
2: its third shot.
0: True. And. I think it's important to mention Stan Winston's effects here. We, uh, Josh, you weren't here for Jurassic Park three, but uh, we were, um, we were saddened that uh, uh, that one of Stan Winston's last films really uh, was so underwhelming in the uh, effects department. Um, But here, my God, he's firing on all cylinders. Yeah, he, uh, they, they do so much with so little. There's a point at the end where the Terminator is crushed by that machine. They pretty much whipped that final shot up where the uh, uh, its head gets crushed, and then the little red light bulb goes out, and the smoke goes across with like foam and a light bulb, and someone blowing cigarette smoke across it. Wow. that's how gorilla this was. <laughs> um, and the today. That fucking stalking go motion endoskeleton with its weird jerky mechanical like it works in this. It wouldn't have worked for raptors, but it works in this because it's a machine and it's got those red eyes in the darkness. And it's this relentless limping gait without a shred of like, um, you know, biological like that. This is causing it pain. It's just malfunctioning. Yeah.
3: And I, I also think it works because it's injured, because mm. then your mind is kind of willing to forgive the jerkiness, because you're like, yeah. oh, it's it's been severely damaged. It's still coming for her, but it's yeah. been severely damaged, which explains why it's struggling to move a bit. Um, that was a clever bit of... Uh, Uh, you know, technology and storytelling coming together so that the two can work in tandem and the technology doesn't look as, as bad as it might have done otherwise.
1: Yeah.
0: But it's a, it's a, throughout the film, you're basically seeing its weaknesses tested. You're like, okay, right. So that guy can stab him, and yeah, he's fine with that. So that guy can try and punch him, and he just breaks his hand. Okay, so Reese can shoot him twice, three times with a shotgun. He falls over. Okay, so is he? no, he's getting back up again. Yeah. And then the police can be shooting him, and no, he's still coming. And um, he puts on those sunglasses because he's covering up his mutilated face, not because he's trying to look cool. Those are uh, uh, to to blend in better. Uh, In fact, I pointed out that in T2 and T3, he doesn't need to put sunglasses onto his perfect face. Um, But uh, Sharon pointed out that if he's going to get on a motorbike, he might want to keep flying bugs out of his optics. So technically, I'll give it that. That's fine. (laughs) But uh, but the Ray Charles glasses are there covering up his just is it's ruined that side of his face. And uh, I get the um, the bit where uh, uh, he, he performs surgery on his, himself is absolutely chilling with how methodical it is, and it's got that do 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 kind of like just like thumping along. It's like a mechanical heartbeat. Like it's 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 very appropriate, in fact, that this is synth. I couldn't Im- imagine this being an orchestral score. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't work with John Williams. and yeah so he cuts out his eye and this is the sort of thing that like everyone in the cinema at the time must have been like like like, imagining pain for a creature that literally doesn't feel this yeah and um, you know performing something that we we could never do to ourselves without just like passing out and just it's it's performed with a, a, a cold precision both uh, in camera, as in the direction itself and the subject on screen.
3: I mean, it, it looks like he's just removing a bit of makeup from his face. That's yeah. the way he's approaching it. Oh, I've I've smudged here. I better just just take that off. It's like it's really creepy when you because. W- that works because it it really is just you know a, a lick of paint over his metal body it's not an eye it's not an eye it's just a piece of flesh Gelty. that he's put there so he can blend in it's it's makeup that's all, all it is to him yeah
0: the the point when um Schwarzenegger actually puts a scalpel uh, very, very close to his eye. they if you watch carefully, they've carefully removed the blade in in one frame where it's really close to him. And absolutely right. I yeah, you know, yeah. could could have half blinded one of the most prolific actors of the eighties. Um but uh and nineties. But um there's also the arm thing with the whole like, you know, the, the, the little uh, um, there's the cause and effect when he's like, you know, pulling the little cable back and and, and the uh, his fingers moving with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, these are pretty basic effects and you can totally see how they're done, but they sell it as a magic trick. And I think it's one of those films where you're just kind of so absorbed in what's going on that you're not really thinking about the effects themselves
2: that's very true of one particular scene actually where you know you're talking about the um the endoskeleton coming towards them down the corridor yeah um now most of the film holds up really well but the compositing in that shot is mm. quite visible however yeah. i had to really um focus to actually see that because yeah. you you kind of you're still so caught up in the the terror of the moment that mm. the fact that the edges are a little bit bright Doesn't really strike you unless you're thinking about it.
3: Yeah. I mean I mean, this has been said a hundred times, but if a movie's boring you and it's you know just a bit rubbish, you notice all of that stuff mm, because yeah. Yeah. you're looking for things to draw your attention. When a film is telling a good story and you are completely wrapped up in what's going on, you don't pick up on that stuff unless you're really trying to focus. Like, there's tons of like uh, videos about how the Matrix has tons of like visual inconsistencies. No one noticed that stuff the first time. <laughs> They watched it. Nobody be- cared. <laughs> because it because the film is so engaging, and it's the same with this. Like, yeah, sure, it doesn't hold up. It's you know slightly aged, but I don't I don't care. I'm I'm invested in what's happening in the moment. Hmm. And again, it's
0: very much of its time. It defined its time. Yeah, it's it was influential enough that you know it being the the it it may not have been the first. I, I want to say cyberpunk, but it feels more market than that. That makes sense because there's nothing really. I mean, there's punks in it, but this kind of transcends the punk <laughs> aesthetic. Yeah, it's I, too serious. I, I
3: think Terminator. It's kind of unique aesthetically. Um, yeah. Tons of things have been inspired by it, and it, and I'm sure you know cyberpunk as it became in you know the late 90s and and then on into the 2000s definitely draws influence aided by 2000 AD i might add and yeah. uh, Judge
0: Dredd comics and and things like blade runner
3: yeah absolutely but in terms of just th- this combination of elements like the uh, the idea of machines rising up and time travel as a <laughs> concept it's still kind of, I I mean I might be wrong here. Some somebody correct me if I, I am wrong here, but that's still unique to Terminator, like this combination of two sci-fi ideas together.
0: Uh I'm writing a book right now with at least two sci-fi ideas together.
3: <laughs> no, 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 sorry. I meant I meant specific specifically these two. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, I forgot what you're saying now, actually, sorry. Yes,
0: time travel and robots taking over. Let me think. Hmm. Uh, Futurama, but that parodies the Terminator, <laughs> and it parodies everything. That's, God, Futurama. That's
2: a good point, actually. Those two things that aren't deliberately referencing or parodying the Terminator.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because ultimately it's one of those things that uh, uh, you kind of have to either acknowledge it or ignore it.
2: Yeah. And by God, was it acknowledged throughout the 90s. Every oh. other thing had a robot arm and a red eye.
0: Especially in the comics. I mean, uh, this specifically took off like crazy during uh, the early 90s, but especially during, like, the, the, everyone was trying to do X-Men, and at least one of every character had to have a robot eye and or a cyborg arm and then, you know, after a, a while, if one of them could possibly be uh, made of molten metal that could form knives and stabbing weapons. So
2: much the better. I mean, yes. I, I, would posit, I would posit that Cable would not exist. Yeah. It's not in that format.
0: Robot from the future. It is important to note, note, by the way, I seem to remember Days of Future Past actually came out before this. True.
3: True oh yeah no you're you're absolutely right that is exactly this isn't it uh
0: let me just check uh it's uh uncanny x men issues one forty one to one forty two published in nineteen eighty one it's a two parter robots have taken over and it involves time travel
3: All right
0: now there are definite parallels absolutely and uh it it feels like uh if if you said that to james cameron um and he would he could he could quite feasibly claim you know what I had never heard of the X-Men I didn't read the X-Men and when I was writing this film I was not aware of that storyline and I'd believe him but it was totally there but it was in comics which is different because comics didn't take hold certainly not of Hollywood until way later yeah. Um, but uh, yeah in 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 consequence the Days of Future Past movie feels a fuckload like the Terminator <laughs> <laughs> Especially with their, like, everything will have, going to be, have happened.
1: Yes. And understand that Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop. Ever. Until you are dead.
0: Uh, And once they're in the back to the effects and Stan Winston just knocking it out of the park, once they're actually inside the the internal factory and the uh, endoskeleton is still chasing them around, once they're beyond the go motion, uh, it's Basically just a giant torso with arms and and a head being pushed around on a shopping cart, but not once do you believe for a second, especially with those sort of like the the shots of its walking skeletal legs, that it's not actually a giant walking skeletal endoskeleton. They've sold it in enough shots from enough different parts of its body for you to go, yep, that's absolutely chasing them. And it, it seems so like tangible and there and mm. shiny and solid and heavy and threatening and uh, and unkillable and they're so scared of it that it sells it because if they weren't really scared you'd be like oh come on they could probably kill this thing
3: yeah i mean um, this is and this is something i miss from you know this uh, from uh filmmaking back in back in the day is that you know you had to be imaginative with this kind of stuff like you had to position the camera in just the right angle you know Ooh. and have just the right lighting you, you know there's a story about the alien queen and and getting the lighting right for that because if you fully lit the alien queen it would look ridiculous but with just the right lighting it looks terrifying it's something i really miss because you don't really get those kind of stories from modern hollywood anymore because it's so easy to create something with cgi now and it you know nowadays it's relative you know it looks relatively real i mean i i think you can still you can still pick up on the fact that it's cgi but it's not got that uh you know you coined the phrase uh millennial rubber it doesn't really yeah. have that anymore um and yeah i kind of miss this kind of creativity that we saw from the 80s early 90s and 70s and what have you where you you were limited by what you could do, but you found creative solutions to sell the audience on the fret of the Terminator, mm. of of the Alien, of the Predator, you know, etc. etc.
0: See, nowadays you can put a full working, moving body of a giant robot thing on the screen, full body, with whatever lighting you wish. Get it to jump wherever you want and smash whatever you want, and do it all, uh, and you have that total control. And as such everything looks the same Yeah, because everyone has exactly the same 100% control. Yeah, I would like to see a film where CGI is used. I mean, we do see it all the time. Neil Blomkamp does it all the time where they use CGI, but with emulating that sense of having to only show you parts of what you can see and emulating that sense of immediacy. Um, and, uh, yeah, if I was going to, uh, like, I'm, I'm incredibly glad that Blomkamp is directing the next Aliens. I think he should direct the next Robocop and the next Terminator.
2: I don't think it's, I think... Fuck say, it, let's go
0: for Predator for the for, for the quadruple <laughs> hat trick. <laughs>
2: Just to give everything to Neil Blomkamp. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's not so much... Um, Just one
0: film each, that's all we need.
2: It's not so much fair to say that it's easier, because ultimately, um, knocking up that shot with the tinfoil and the cigarette and the little led light yeah was easy once they'd figured out what they were doing with it um and sitting and pouring Pouring your heart and soul into a digital creation takes time and it takes effort and you need an artist who knows exactly what they're doing and more to the point can put a sense of humanity into what they're creating because otherwise it just looks fake. Um, And I think CG is one of those things that that looks as though it's very easy to do, but it's excruciatingly difficult to do it right. Absolutely. I think the the key thing that that both of you are saying, which I completely agree with, is that the limitations that come with having to think your way around practical effects create some creative solutions that um, that result a, in something better than anybody could ever envision. You you organically get something that nobody would actually think of.
0: It's in it's unique scenarios that that occur as a result of different requirements during a film with its own unique limitations. Mm. In other words, it's emergent filmmaking.
2: Exactly. And, and that's, that's the thing. CG, you can create anything that a person can think of, but a person yeah. has to think of it.
3: This is one of the, the earlier examples of uh, subverting the damsel in distress trope. Yeah. Yes. Um, in that, like, The film, you know, is set up with you thinking, oh, okay, Reese is going to save Sarah, when in actuality Reese ends up dying and Sarah has to save herself. And um, it's, it's a great example of, you know pioneer feminism uh in the yeah it's, it's great it's great to go back and watch that film and go yeah we, we were thinking about this stuff uh quite a while ago it, this isn't new um but yeah it was great to see that
0: cameron was pretty much on his own throughout the 80s though this this yeah. was an unusual thing for him to do and it took a while for it to catch on
3: oh absolutely um, yeah
0: but the, uh Even Catherine Bigelow uh, was directing from a very masculine point of view. And uh, um, uh, she actually feels often like a uh, less sci-fi invested Cameron.
3: Hmm.
0: And uh, I do wonder if if, uh, Bigelow could do sci-fi, whether they would end up looking like this or feeling like this.
2: Well, they probably had a bit of an impact on each other uh, in terms of, you know. I think he exec
0: produced some of her films.
2: And they were married.
0: Yeah, there was that to (laughs) it. There there was that element to it.
2: Um, But um, yeah, it it does feel a bit uncomfortable for me to attribute anything feminist-ish to Cameron just because personal life side of things and and his reputation for how he works with people. it, It makes it... Problematic, but I don't think that that strips the value from the characters that he's created. And ultimately, it's it's not it's not just his ideas either. It's the way they're brought to life, and it's the fact that they have um, actors who've been able to embody those characters and and really bring them through um, that that yeah. makes them what they are. It's you know, Linda Hamilton is so crucial. Yeah. To that role and it seems so different from the way she is in real life she's so soft-spoken and and you know seems like such a sweet sweet person um that you know incredible performance from her absolutely outstanding
3: yeah one thing um, this series shares uh, with Alien is that um, the female protagonist is not your typical Hollywood template either. Um, mm. Both Linda Hamilton and um, Sigourney Weaver, Weaver are—you know—they're very attractive women, but they don't like fit into that like really like supermodel Hollywood archetype that you know throughout the eighties and nineties was you know. Was abound but like i i, I really like that L- linda looks like a soldier like she looks capable she looks practical um and i just it really frustrates i i mentioned this because it really frustrates me when um uh you like the fantastic four movies for example the the mm-hmm. the earlier ones it seems like A a lot of people are cast because they're attractive rather than they suit the role. Mm -hmm. And I I really appreciated that Linda Hamilton... She's she's an attractive woman, but like she looks like she suits that character. She looks like she is capable of picking up a gun and you know defending herself. It's mm. it and, and you know the same with um, Ripley in the Alien movies. Th- these two characters share a lot in common. Mm. Um, but like yeah, just having it's so even now which is sad to say it really is sad to say that even now it's so rare to see a female character look like she suits the role that they um that, that that they've been cast in rather than well she's attractive let's just put her in this role because she's very pretty like it it, it annoys me when people are cast based on their looks rather than like do they embody what this character is all about?
2: Mm. I think as well that is is because a lot of a lot of people who appear to have been cast for that reason simply because they are Hollywood gorgeous. Yeah, they do the role well. There's nothing wrong with the way they perform it, and and yeah. you know you you can't really question that there's there's an element you know they've been cast because they they did it. Brilliantly, and and you know the, the casting director obviously saw that in them, but it's almost like you have to be outstanding for the role, and beautiful. Yeah. And if you were outstanding for the role and didn't fit that Hollywood template, you wouldn't get a foot in the door, which is extremely frustrating. Um, the other thing as well that I I find particularly uh, engaging about Sarah and about Ripley, um, and they are. They are similar in terms of their their themes and their, their core elements, is that there is a bit of a tendency to look at uh, strong women. And there's been a bit of a backlash against it in recent um, times, particularly that there has become this thing that women have got to be strong in order to be interesting. That um, A woman who shows any vulnerability or weakness is going to get written off as just another girly girl and nobody's going to be interested in her. But if you look at, at the way Sarah and Ripley become hardened, that is not portrayed as a good thing.
0: Yeah. it's yeah. necessary. Like I said no one wants to swap places with Samantha. Absolutely. You don't want
2: it's that. necessary they have to be capable but they have to force themselves to be capable. This is not something that comes naturally to them. In mm. in aliens you've got the woman to who that comes naturally that's Vasquez. <clears throat> that's not Ripley. And they have um, both of them are put in a position where uh, they have to be not Specifically that they have to be incredibly maternal in the, uh, you know, be soft and and be um, sort of a a nice, safe home for your baby to come to. But they have to kind of get into that almost mother bear protective role. Now, that is a a kind of strength that I find incredibly fascinating. And and I think that doesn't get explored enough in film. Um, You know, the idea of um, motherhood and motherly behavior not necessarily being you know i made you an apple pie come here and have a hug but i'm here and therefore you don't die
0: yeah Yeah, i'm sorry i could probably relate to that a little bit so I've got a few uh, more notes that I uh, hadn't mentioned as we were going down. There was, uh, as well as Bill Paxton the punks at the beginning, there's Brian Thompson. He's the one who gets uh, Schwarzenegger's arm through him. Uh, he's Luke in Buffy. He's uh, this, you know, great big, like, you know, carved out of stone looking guy. He's actually not a million miles away from Schwarzenegger in, in, in features. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this was just an odd little uh, uh, sci-fi debut. I'm sure he was in something before this. But, uh, yep. Uh, Also, the intense future information dump when Kyle tells Sarah all about the future war. We've seen this enough times. We know this already. This scene should be boring. This should be the low point of the film. It's really good. It's really, really excellent every single time. The amount of intensity he throws into it informs on his character And the ludicrousness of it, and how Sarah just really doesn't uh, absorb it to begin with, it it really sells what a a desperate situation they're in. You know, we know he's uh, telling the truth, but he has to get her to believe and to take in all of this. It's a fantastic moment. And there are other films and other filmmakers, even accomplished filmmakers, who can't do that information dump well.
2: And her reaction to that as well is uh, it's something that you can you see new elements of every time you watch it. Mm. She's at that point. That's the most damsell-y that she is throughout the film. Um, she's, you know, pressed herself to the back of the car seat. She's absolutely terrified. She can't move. She's not shrieking like a fool mm. because. it's almost like she's too scared she's too scared to scream she does, instead of the um, and in fact I've I've talked about this before um, that there's there's fight or flight and there's also freeze um, which is kind of, it's a valid fear response because it's like you've got the play dead element of it if I lie here and don't move maybe the thing that's threatening me will go away but it also can buy you a few precious moments to reassess what's going on around you and maybe make yeah. a better decision. And when she's in that pose where her hands are up and she's absolutely still, you can see her eyes are moving everywhere she's looking at where she is what's surrounding her she's assessing what's going on she's listening very carefully to what Kyle's saying you can see the expressions on her face as so she works out what parts of what he's saying does she believe and what parts does she think are ridiculous and that carries on through her responses to most things later on when she's in the police station and, and he's Uh, uh, the Terminator's coming in and mowing everybody down, and she gets into the office and she's sat there on her own. She's not just just standing there being scared, panting and, and panicking. She's looking around the room. Where can she go? Where can she hide? She's moving to try and find herself somewhere that's more secure. She's always responding to her environment. She's not just being scared because the director told her to. And that is something that you would think would be absolutely standard to performing a role, and it really isn't.
0: There's a couple of, uh, like, there's two notable Terminator lines. You know, you said like, that he's got six lines. Technically, all six of them are memorable. It's uh, your, your clothes, give them to me. That's one. Um, what else is there? Sarah Connor. Uh, can anyone like, yeah, let's name all six lines, shall we? Okay. Uh, there's, of course, there's I'll be back which stuck as we all know i don't think it, i mean it, it, it they didn't know at that point that this was going to become his shtick and in fact there aren't that many other actors who have uh, a thing that they say anymore are there that doesn't happen these days Jackman. Really. what's that as it well no wolverine has now made a habit of saying go fuck yourself uh, for three x-men movies or, or True, had that scene mentioned but that's the
2: character he doesn't have that yeah. in
0: every is it hugh Jackman's film? not going to turn up in a romantic comedy and go go fuck yourself that'd be awful <laughs> awful to be straddled with that um there's also fuck you asshole which is a, a great little moment possibly just because the the guy he's saying it to is so comedically grotty you know, he's, got the, he's wearing a tank top, he's got these hairy shoulders, he's chomping on a stogie, he looks like Danny DeVito's dad crossed with Paulie from Rocky. I was going to say,
2: he looks like Paulie. Uh, you can imagine again, this, is, Rock. this is where Paulie ends up when Rocky can't look after him
0: anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, asshole. Uh, you talk to me like that. Uh. Anyway, I hate Paulie. Have we not done Rocky yet? Sharon, we should totes do Rocky.
1: Haven't we
2: done it? No, we haven't.
0: No. We watch them. We keep
2: talking about them. It's not the same things. thing. No, we'll know that's true. <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've talked about them so endlessly, I can never remember whether we were recording at the time or not.
0: Anyway, Paulie is a piece of fucking dog shit. I hate Paulie. Anyway, um, any anyone else know the other two lines? I think that's pretty much it. Uh, and we can't count the, I love you too, sweetheart, which is chilling. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, you know, I, I've said about like, you know, that it'd be really terrifying if you saw a human with dog's eyes or vice versa. Um, Schwarzenegger speaking in Sarah Connor's mother's voice, almost certainly after he's just killed her, is terrifying. I mean, more so even than Janelle in uh, uh, T2.
2: That's played slightly for laughs anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's a horrible scene, but it is played slightly for
0: laughs. Mm. Speaking of slightly for laughs, uh, thank. I mean, it's actually kind of neat that uh, uh, Lance Henriksen is it Paul Winchell as uh, as the other police officer. Just their banter throughout the uh, the first third of the movie when they're just talking about this and that, and just how Henriksen starts all of these little crappy stories and then gets stopped.
1: Mm.
2: Shut up, you know,
0: Ed. This, this guy burned his dog. <laughs> Screwed it first. He's like, shut up, Ed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh dear! Oh, do you know who we haven't mentioned?
0: Uh Ginger.
2: Doctor Silverman.
0: Silverman, patronising git. He's he's the only uh, guy who's in all three movies of the first three, apart from Schwarzenegger himself. Um. Yeah. What, what do you have to say about the symbol, Silverman? Um.
2: Hmm. Other than that, he's a patronising git. Um. I think. <laughs>
0: It just in this film alone, obviously you can go back into him in uh, in the second
2: one. Yeah. I don't know. He's he's kind of the polar opposite of Kyle. He totally lacks any intensity whatsoever. Yeah, he bores himself. Um, I mean, I know it's early hours of the morning, but he spends most of that conversation yawning. Um, mm-hmm. And he's just so totally self-interested. His, his fascination... With what Kyle is saying, but from the point of view of being able to write a book about it, and I mean, mm. he says I could base a career on this guy. He then goes on to do exactly that.
0: Yeah, I'm a Christmas wizard. That's exactly what yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, fortunately, he comes back for the second one. it's, it's, it's neat way the second one ties itself back to the first but in a way that you don't have to have seen the first one Mm. we'll talk about that more next week and I'm really looking forward to that but um, yeah I'm always like there's always a stabbing sadness at the end when when she rolls over Kyle and he's dead but the fact that they then immediately follow that up with and the Terminator still coming and you have to do this on your own now That's a really excellent way of saying, right, your your training wheels are now totally off, Connor. Uh, You've got all the safeties off. Every possible defense you have, aside from what you can pull together, you can't even run at this point. The Terminator has violently penetrated her with a piece of metal and thus taken her legs out of the equation. Um, Putting them on a level playing field, but obviously it can crush her to death as soon as it gets its hands on her. But... um, but yeah they just the, the satisfaction and the yes moment of your terminated fucker that's um, it's always undercut when you ever whenever you watch that on TV because it's your terminated and it just like sort of cuts through there rather like the TV version of get away from her in aliens <laughs> but um, yeah it's both both are examples of a woman Finding that strength, finding that survival ability. Uh, in, in Ripley's case, it's for protection. In uh, Technically, yeah. No. She doesn't know it yet, but Sarah is protecting John at that stage. Mm,
2: yeah. See, this is something that I find it's so weird that this is not more often explored. Because to me, this is how women are. They have, you know, most of the women that I know... Have these reserves of strength that you you get to see when they are tested, you get to see when they're put in a situation where everything doesn't go smoothly. That's you know that's that's a daily thing. Why is that not talked about? Why is that not the the standard portrayal? Why are we talking about it like this? It's this amazing, mind blowing, unique thing. Hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: it's not even all that innovative it's uh it's it shouldn't necessarily be the standard but it shouldn't be remarkable Mm.
2: yeah Yeah. well that's kind of what i mean yeah
3: obviously you need
2: variety and diversity and it would be just as boring if everybody was exactly the same
3: yeah yeah it's just the fact that yeah that there are so few examples to even you know choose from Mm. Uh, and uh, I mean it's it's much the same with most female characters unfortunately how how there are so few examples of where where women get to be funny in films and stuff like that Mm. there are the there are exceptions like bridesmaids and stuff like that and Mm. and we're kind of we're we're seeing a a sea change in that regard with stuff like Parks and Recreation and um, what you know the Thirty Rock yeah Thirty Rock and and Tina Fey's you know projects outside of that but like yeah like I. Men get to be funny all the time, and women don't get to be funny. Men get to be strong and powerful all the time, and women don't. It's, it's, it is really, yeah, it's, it is terrible. There is no excuse for it, but that's the way it is, unfortunately. Hopefully it will change.
0: This is why I strove to make both Annie and Abigail funny. Mm.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. There's
2: also, however, the fact that men get to think they're funny and think they're strong and powerful all the time, <laughs> yeah. and then they
0: turn out not to be.
3: Kevin James. Um. <laughs> Kevin
0: James, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Ah, uh, Kevin James is a millionaire. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Riding those Adam Sandler coattails.
1: <laughs>
3: Adam Sandler is a multi-millionaire.
0: <laughs> Uh, and on that dark future, <laughs> we must prevent this. No, um, is there anything else to be uh, said for the original Terminator?
2: I think I'm done. Yeah. I've got, yeah, I have got a few more notes, but it's basically just repeating stuff I've already said. So.
0: I'll just reiterate how tight this film really is. You just you watch it, and it just booms by it's not like um so fast you you don't see it you just you're 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 along for the ride it is a ride it's a terrifying ride it's like being stuck on a jeep by a crazy uncle and driven around a, a countryside wilderness presided over by warlords but when you come out at the end of it like i said there is a sobering aspect to the finale and it's it's not a happy film most definitely uh the second is more hopeful, which is great. I, it, it, you know, as soon as the second came out, this suddenly started working in tandem with two. And uh, I actually I actively discourage the reference to Terminator films. As far as I'm concerned, there is the Terminator and Terminator 2, and then a bunch of other people trying to do what they can with uh, James Cameron's extremely well executed and closed off universe
3: Yeah.
0: because he leaves it in a way that you can't really follow up on.
3: Yeah. And the only way Free <clears throat> manages to follow up on Terminator two is by undermining one of the central themes of Terminator two, all the mm-hmm. way through Terminator two. It's like fate is, you know what you make of it. Like, but, in Terminator,
0: what we have, what we make for ourselves. Kyle even actually gives that to her in this, yeah. didn't he? Whereas- uh, for, was it from John?
2: Yes. John tells it, her yeah. that. Mm-hmm.
0: So John tells Kyle, Kyle tells Sarah, Sarah tells John, and then John tells the Terminator.
3: Yeah. But then in Terminator 3, it's like, oh no, Judgment Day was always going to happen. There was no way <laughs> you're going to change that. Yeah, okay. Thanks for just completely destroying one of the points of the second film. Yeah. Uh, I was very careful in the language
0: in my essay not to say that the, uh, the future war is inevitable. Uh, that, that time forms a, con- forms a loop in this first one, but the second one questions that loop.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's why they work together, because the question of the loop can't be answered. If you answer it...
1: You make another loop.
0: You make another loop. It's It's binary. <gasps> Fuck. This is the zero. Terminator 2 is the one. Yeah. Terminator and everything 3 after-
2: is the two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the number two. There is no such thing as two, Bender. I don't know. So, I mean, yeah, he almost... I, I don't think it is even... Po- I, I think it's possible to make a really great Terminator film. I'm not sure it's possible to make a really great Terminator film that fits with one and two.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's, I
0: want to be proven wrong.
3: I mean, I'd I'd make the argument that Looper is as as close to a Terminator film as we've seen in uh, recent mm. years. Certainly, um, it's a Terminator remake in, in of sorts.
0: Yeah. yeah, but it is batshit crazy and doesn't actually follow its own internal logic. True. I think we should talk about Looper because it is actually a really good good little film. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would rather talk about Looper than Terminator 3, Terminator Salvation, and I suspect Terminator (laughs) Genesis. But uh, Sharon and I are watching the Sarah Connor Chronicles. And uh, we will know by the time this episode comes out whether uh, we'll be doing a podcast on it. um, Because we'll have seen them and we'll know whether we've actually recorded something on it. Um, And if we haven't, then it's because it was good. But we got kind of burned out on Terminator once we hit Genesis. Yeah. God, I feel like i'm I'm a warrior from the future coming back to warn you people of of what could be happening and what must be prevented, which is the blockbuster success of Terminator Genesis. This is Alex Shaw from the Future, saying we will be doing a podcast on Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and it will run as a double bill with our Terminator Salvation Show.
3: I think the thing that shocks me about all those trailers is that mm-hmm. it looks worse than Terminator 3 and Salvation. Canada. Just from the promotional footage. And mm-hmm. that's meant to be the good stuff. That's meant to be the stuff that's selling me on the yeah. movie. You're supposed
0: to be disappointed after you see the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so oh, what,
3: what, what is going to be in that movie? Because they're not showing us the worst stuff. Because this is the promotional material. They are not showing us the worst stuff. What the hell is in that movie?
0: <laughs> I'm going to see it in the hope that there are lots of quiet conversations uh, and, and concepts that get raised in it that they can't put in a trailer because it's not immediately interesting to people and you need to see them in context, and that it is actually a really worthy successor and is actually really smart. Oh, my God. The, there's cautious optimism and then there's <laughs> blind faith. In what I don't have any faith in the production team, I don't know, but uh, uh dear, yeah, I mean, by the time I get to edit this i won't I still won't have seen Genesis, so we don't know. hey, anyway, so I would like to thank Mr. Joshua Garrity for coming on to the show and gracing us with his excellent observations. Fuck that sounds sarcastic, hang on. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Josh. I actually (laughs) didn't mean every word of it, but I was like, ugh. That's okay. Okay, right. So I'd like to thank Joshua Garrity for coming on the show. Thank you, Josh.
3: You're welcome. It's quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) Now that sounded sarcastic. Yeah, it did. Oh, it's quite a (sighs) while. Can I have a second go at that? Sorry. Go for it. Go
0: for it. We'll use time travel to go back to it.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And I'm going to leave you with a scene which is the only acceptable there's a storm coming scene ever, with the storm meaning conflict, because I think this was the original. Uh, So I've been Alex Shaw.
2: I've been Sharon Shaw. And come with me me if you want to live.
1: just say he said there's a storm coming